This Sabbath, uh, we're going to be beginning a brand new series uh, that I'm really excited to share with you. Um, and it's titled Fear, Faith in Uncertain Times. And this is going to be a five-part series, so it's going to be a little bit long. Uh, but the reason why I'm really excited about this one, uh, first of all, I have been following a similar theme for the past three series where in light of COVID-19 and, and all the suffering and trying to make sense of everything that's going on, um, I've been giving you opportunities and tools uh, to help better understand the situation that we're in, but also to kind of give you comfort and peace at a time like now. But the reason why I'm excited about this uh, particular series is because uh, I feel like it's very relatable um, to not just this situation of COVID-19, uh, but to any situation where we deal with uncertainty or with the fear of whatever that may be. Um, and so all of us, uh, whether young or old, experiences unknowns in our lives. Uh, and when we experience some kind of unknown or uncertainty, one of the most common uh, behaviors uh, or emotions that we exhibit is this emotion of fear. Uh, and it's because we simply don't know what is to come, right? This fear of uncertainty, this fear of the unknown. Uh, this is something that happens to all of us. And we all experience some kind of confusing, um, unknown moment of our lives, whether it be of the loss of a loved one to an unjust death, or maybe someone that's been a dedicated lover uh, to God who um, feels like that God has just been ignoring and neglecting them. Maybe it's from heartbreak, uh, maybe disappointment, betrayal, uh, whatever it may be, we all experience some kind of unknowns in our lives. In this five-week series, we're going to be exploring different characters of the Bible uh, who all experience a season of fear, or in other words, this in-between trial of life. Uh, and we're going to be doing a case study on these characters and these groups of people uh, who have experienced times of frustration, times of pain, times of suffering, and times of difficult questioning. And, uh, you know, like I said, the reason why I'm really excited to share this series with you is that uh, I don't think it necessarily has to deal with only COVID-19, but I think it has to do with just life in general. And so uh, I think in light of what's going on now, of course, I feel like this is more of an appropriate message. It obviously was not something that I was planning on from the beginning of the year, uh, but I really do think this is relevant and this could be helpful to some of you that may be going through these kind of seasons of fear. Um, and uh, basically, um, the, the takeaway message out after this series that I hope that you will remember and that you will pull out with this is that um, in the midst of these difficult and challenging circumstances that we may find ourselves in, that we as the church can hold on to our faith in God uh, to help us carry through. And so I pray in this series that week by week for the next five weeks um, or so, that we will be able to reflect on our moments and our times of trials in our lives and remember that we can always point back to the faith that we have or if you have yet to have a, strong, uh, a faith in God, um, that you can have a faith in God that will help you get through difficult times like now. Now, today we're going to be beginning our journey talking about a very well-known, uh, pretty, pretty common character when it comes to suffering and uh, disaster and uh, extreme tragedy. Uh, and yet, 
though he experienced all this, he still held on to his faith. And we're going to be talking none other uh, than Job. Uh, and so we're going to be doing a case study on the book of Job uh, this Sabbath to begin our series. Now, uh, I don't want to read through the entire book. Uh, it's 42 chapters long, and so we're not going to do a chapter by chapter, verse by verse analysis of the book. Um, but I'm going to be pinpointing uh, two key things, two or three key things uh, in the book of Job that will help us have a better understanding of how uh, Job himself deals with this particular season of fear and what that looks like and what that could mean for us today. Um, now, uh, as I've shared with you guys before, and I've, I have a tendency uh, to do this in my studies and in my sermons and in Bible studies, and something that I want to encourage you guys to do as well, is uh, we're going to look at context. And I think it's, like I said, so important, hopefully by now you know, uh, that context, I think, is one of the most fundamental key things um, in understanding what the Bible has to say for us. Uh, I want to give you guys the most accurate, uh, the most responsible um, study of the Bible through my sermons. And so I think one of the important things is, is looking at context, right? I've given many examples and I won't share those today, um, but we're going to be looking at the context in which we find the book of Job, because by looking at the context of Job, we have a better understanding of why this comes, why this book comes into the Bible, why it's so significant, and we'll pull out some lessons because of that. Now, uh, Job is actually considered one of the three books that a lot of scholars like to consider the wisdom literature. Um, and the wisdom literature contains the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and finally the book of Job. And the interesting thing is that all three of these books, they all address similar questions like this, of, uh, like uh, what follows here. It says, what kind of world do we live in? Right. Um, and what does it mean to live uh, well in this world? Or how do we live a good life? Right. These are kind of the overlaying questions that these three books kind of attempt to answer. Um, now, each of these books, which I think is very interesting, is that they take very unique and different perspectives while they look at these questions and answer them uh, in their kind of uh, view of um of how to live the good life. Um, and in order to understand or to have a very solid biblical answer of these questions, I think it's important that we look at all three different perspectives so that we can see what the Bible has to say about how we can live the good life and how we can uh, understand better the wisdom literature books. Now, uh, I think it was last year or so, I actually shared through Friday Vespers, a little bit about the wisdom literature, and we, you know, talked about it, and we had uh, Vespers uh, discussing this. And so, if you uh, are familiar, or if you were a part of those Vespers, and you remember everything that I talked about, then this will be a little bit of a review. But uh, if you haven't heard this, this will hopefully be exciting and brand new knowledge for you uh, to take as you journey through studying the Bible, and as we journey together, especially uh, today uh, through the Book of Job. Um, now, uh, when I started talking about this series, or when I started talking about the wisdom literature with the youth for Friday Vespers, um, I, to help them better understand, uh, and I want to share uh, what I shared with them, to better understand these three books, we created characters, or not really created characters, but uh, I associated uh, a, a person or an image, made some imagery uh, to relate to each of the books to kind of give us a better understanding of um, 
of what these books are about. So first of all, the book of Proverbs is like this young, brilliant woman teacher who has all this knowledge and wants to share it with us, right? So young, brilliant woman teacher. The book of Ecclesiastes is more of this pessimistic, middle-aged man. He's a little bit of the critic. Uh, he can be a little sharp at times, uh, but he's the middle-aged man, sharp, uh, cynical, a uh, little bit of a pessimist. And then the book of Job, we compare it to that of an old man, you know, white hair, maybe a long beard, and has lived a long life. And you can tell just by looking at him, looking at his white hairs and the wrinkles on his face, that he's lived a long life and he's seen a lot. Uh, and so we compare these three books to these images, and you'll see why as I kind of explain it to you. Um, but uh, let's go ahead uh, and start talking about the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to first start with Proverbs, move to Ecclesiastes. But understanding these two books a little bit more in depth and in their context will help us better understand the book of Job and the message that I want to share with you guys today. So like I said earlier, first of all, Proverbs is like this woman, this young, brilliant teacher. Uh, she knows a lot and she has a lot of wisdom to share from things like relationships, from business to work to living life, to uh, happiness, spirituality, money, you, you name it, everything. This woman knows a lot, right? And she wants to share that with you. And if you look at the uh, book of Proverbs, you'll notice, uh, this is not something that I make up. If you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll know that there's so much wisdom. There's so many one-liners that are great. You know, for younger people, this is like social media uh, content. Like you can make Instagram posts off of these things. Like these are very powerful and very profound words of wisdom coming from this young, brilliant teacher. And I always recommend for those that are looking for a devotion or, you know, they don't know where to start reading the Bible. I always recommend reading the book of Proverbs. Read a proverb a day. Uh, there's 31 chapters, and so you can read uh, through the month the book of Proverbs. And so I want to challenge you if you don't have a devotion or you're looking for somewhere to go and somewhere to start, I think it's a wonderful way to get uh, involved in the Bible. And, you know, the message behind this book is great too. Um, but anyways, as I digress, uh, the book of Proverbs is someone or is a book like someone that you would want to have around you all the time. Right? When you go through some kind of difficult situation, just like when you call a best friend and they happen to just know all the great advice, whether it be relationship advice, uh, life advice, career advice, like this is the Proverbs, if Proverbs was a person, this is the person that you want to keep by your side uh, through it all. Um, and so that's a little bit about the book of Proverbs. Um, and now, when you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll notice that there's this, uh, there's this thing that she talks about or the book of Proverbs talks about where it's something in this universe that helps people and guides them in how they should live life, right? Uh, and just like gravity, you know, or you can't see gravity itself, but you know it's there. We all know it's there. Otherwise, I would be floating around and you'd be floating around taping your stuff to the tables and tables to the floor and then, you know, your house to the earth. Uh, obviously, we know that gravity exists. We can't necessarily see it, but we know that it's there. Um, and just like gravity uh, or this thing that's just like gravity where we can't see it, but we can see the effects of it and how it affects our lives, uh, this thing that's being talked about in the Hebrew is actually hokma, right? Uh, it's spelled like chokma, and I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm saying it wrong. Uh, but from the scholarship that I, I follow and I listen to, uh, they refer to it as hokma, right? And it's often, this Hebrew word is translated in the English to wisdom, right? So this is where we call 
uh, this wisdom, right? There's wisdom all over the book of Proverbs, but this word is used over and over again, right? Now, this word is literally the attribute of God, right? And this is what God uses uh, to create the world, right? So, chokmah is basically a part of our everyday lives, right? So, when people are making good, just, wise decisions, they're tapping into this ideal of chokmah, while people are um, making bad decisions, uh, unmoral, uh, unjust decisions, basically, they're working against the ideal of chokmah. Proverbs 1, 32-33, it says this. It says, For the turning away of the simple will slay them, for the compla- and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. And, you know, in verse 33, this is, uh, this is this lady referring to herself, right? If you listen to me, you will dwell safely, will be secure without fear of evil. Now, basically, this is a cause and effect pattern of life, right? And this is the reality of the world we live in. This is not something that you can choose to believe in, choose to deny, uh, choose to accept or to ignore. Um, it's just how the world is, right? So, for example, murder is is wrong and murder is murder, uh, not because you, you decided that murder was wrong, but simply for the fact that we all know that murder is simply just wrong. Right? That's just the reality of the world. The death, un, un, unjust death of somebody is simply the wrong thing to do. Right, um, and, uh, and the reason why that's the case is because this thing uh, in the universe, chokmah, is what dictates that. Right? So in Proverbs 120, uh, we actually find uh, the book of Proverbs personifying all of this as a woman. Right? And who's a brilliant young teacher. Uh, Sometimes scholarship likes to refer to her as Lady Wisdom. And so maybe your Bible say that, or maybe you've heard that before. Uh, But this lady, this personification of the book of Proverbs is referred to as Lady Wisdom. Now, with this imagery that we have, we find that as long as you're willing to listen and accept whatever this Lady Wisdom has to offer to us, we can use this to make a beautiful life for ourselves. And this is the great thing. The great thing is that anyone and everyone has access to tap into this ideal of chokmah, right? The great thing about wisdom um, also, or chokmah in the Hebrew, is that this is not referring only to a head knowledge, but it's referring to uh, a craft knowledge, like a skill knowledge. Uh, And so in other words, uh, if you think of like a carpenter or a craftsman, a plumber, or um, a constructor, or whoever, whatever uh, you can think of. um, So, it's this ideal of, of hokma. When you put hokma to work and you develop a life that's good, you build and construct a life that is good, you're basically showing that you possess and you're able to tap into this ideal of hokma or wisdom, right? So this is not just a book knowledge we're talking about. We're talking about a practical life wisdom, life knowledge uh, kind of thing. Now, before I drag on with talking about the book of Proverbs, um, one more thing in Hebrew thought, well, that when in Hebrew thought, when they talk about this journey uh, to obtaining wisdom, uh, they always emphasize that the beginning of obtaining wisdom begins with the ideal of fear uh, the Lord, right? Or it's called the fear of the Lord. Now, 
Uh, I'm sure I've talked about this before, and I'm sure you're aware, but just to make sure this is clear, uh, the fear of the Lord is not necessarily this, oh, I'm afraid of you, God, like, God, like, back off, like, I don't want to deal with you, like, you scare me, I can't sleep at night. Uh, This is like a reverence, right? This is a healthy respect for God um, and what God's definition of what good and evil is in this world. That's what this fear of the Lord is. It's looking to God and respecting and revering that what He defines and dictates as good and evil is what we will adhere by, right? And it's learning not to cross those lines and go out of uh, those, learning within those borders and not crossing uh, those lines. So basically, to summarize the book of Proverbs, it's this. It's basically, it's promoting a life of chokmah and the fear of the Lord so that we can ultimately live a good life or live the good life, right? Now, of course, one of you guys, some of you guys may think, not one of you guys, I'm sure many of you guys would think, if you just think about it a little bit, you would think, well, pastor, like, that seems very, like, idealistic. Like, that doesn't seem very realistic uh, in the world that we live in now, right? We look at this world today, and we see hurt and suffering and pain, and we see bad things happening to good people, and we wonder, like, well, yeah, Proverbs is nice and all, and the message of, you know, if you follow this chokmah, this wisdom, then you can live a good life, that sounds great. But is that really a reality that we can believe in and uh, and hold on to today? Um, And I think this is why Ecclesiastes uh, is very important to understand and why we have to group these three books together. First of all, like I said earlier, uh, Ecclesiastes is personified as uh, this middle-aged man who's a critic, a little bit pessimistic, and he's a little sharp. Um, And the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read through it, is this theme and this ideal that everything under the sun is meaningless, right? Or the 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 catchphrase is everything is meaningless. Um, now, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, there's actually two different voices that we hear throughout the book, and we want to be able to distinguish this because it'll make more sense when you look at the end of Ecclesiastes uh, and also the beginning and the middle section of Ecclesiastes. But there's two voices, and the first is that of a middle-aged critic, while the second one is actually the author who's compiling the words of the middle-aged critic. And so, we typically personify it as uh, this middle-aged man who's a pessimist and who's spitting out some knowledge and um, just like realities of life. And the author is collecting all of these things, but the intention, as you'll see in the end of Ecclesiastes, is that the author is gathering all of these things, he's summarizing it, and then adding his little final touch and final say to the whole uh, argument that he has. And you'll see. Now, there are three very uh, kind of disturbing themes that the book of Ecclesiastes goes through. Uh, The first one being the march of time. The second one being we're all going to die. And the third one being life is random. Now, uh, each of these things, um, and I'm not going to go too much into depth. I think they're pretty self-explanatory. But Ecclesiastes says in his first theme, he talks about how, you know, from the beginning of time to the end of time, like time has always been here. And we're simply just human beings making our way, sojourning through uh, this world. And so, you know, we're going to live, we're going to be born, we're going to live, and then we're going to die. And then we're going to vanish in the dust. And like, you know, no one's going to remember us and life will go on. That's kind of depressing. Uh, And then uh, it talks about, or he continues in this theme of, hey, everyone's going to die. You know, you're going to die. Like, you're going to be born. But guess what? In the end, you're going to die, right? And the very last theme, uh, very 
kind of disturbing theme is he says that life is basically random and he's basically addressing what Proverbs was not able to address in the sense that that life happens really randomly like bad things can happen to good people just because you do these things in life doesn't guarantee that you're going to live a good life but the reality is is sometimes bad things happen to good people so Ecclesiastes uh Pins points uh, these three very real things that we I think we can all agree on and relate to and understand uh, in our world today. Um, but just remember this, uh, if you don't remember anything, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes paints a very brutal, honest picture and harsh reality of the world uh, that many of us can relate to and understand, especially in 2020. Now, Ecclesiastes really understands that life is not as simple as the book of Proverbs uh, describes it to be. And life is unpredictable, and the book of Ecclesiastes gets it 100%, just understands. Now, for the theme of Ecclesiastes, the theme, as I mentioned earlier, was that everything is meaningless. And this phrase is very profound, uh, but it's even more profound when we look at it in the Hebrew. Because, uh, frankly speaking, and very bluntly speaking, uh, it, it got lost in translation. The meaning and the metaphor behind uh, this phrase uh, was simply lost. And so we're going to look at that really quickly. Um, but in the Hebrew, um, uh, meaningless is not actually... Uh, what we think it is, but in the Hebrew, it's Havel. And Havel, uh, better translated, is like smoke or vapor, like a smoke or a vapor. Um, and you'll find this word used almost 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we know that this is a very prevalent theme. Um, but like smoke, uh, life is beautiful, right? Yet it's mysterious. It can take one shape and then in, the instant, in, a, in, a, in a click of a second, it can take another shape, right? Uh, smoke is, uh, appears to be solid, but the moment you try to grab the smoke, guess what happens? It slips through your fingers. And if you're in the middle of a bunch of smoke, the reality is, is you're not going to be able to see through it very clearly, no matter how much you try to clear the smoke away. Now, like I said, the metaphor is simply lost in translation. When we say that life is meaningless, we get this impression that there's no purpose to life. We think that life is just, oh, what's the point? Like, why should we even live? Like, there's no point of living anymore. Uh, but it's lost in translation, right? So in the Hebrew, you can see that there's a totally different uh, uh, metaphor or totally different meaning when we understand the Hebrew first. Um, and it's very clear. Uh, with this understanding, and if you look through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see that he's not saying that life has no meaning, but rather he's saying the meaning isn't always clear in life. Right? Life can be confusing, just like smoke. Right? Now, with this, you may be wondering, okay, pastor, like, what does this mean? Like, what's the point? You see, the critic in the book of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't actually end uh, on a sour note. Rather, he acknowledges the perspectives of the previous book of Proverbs, and he actually says that what Proverbs is saying is the right thing to do. And then he says that we should learn wisdom, we should learn chokmah, and we should fear the Lord. But he, what he does say is that we have to understand that since we have no control over the life that we live, that we should stop trying to control life. Okay? Or in other words, uh, he's saying that we should be more open. Right? He's saying that 
the only thing we really can control is what's in front of us. That the present is the only thing that we have control over. So to take the time to enjoy and to bask in what we have now, rather than trying to, to control every bit and detail of your future, right? He's saying, don't worry, just be present, right? Be present and, and look at the things like, simple things like sowing the seed in your garden or watering your plants or uh, spending time with your animals or looking at the raindrops, just paying attention to the simple things in life. And so we see Ecclesiastes obviously is a little bit overcome by, by this everything is meaningless theme when really in the reality, he's trying to present a message where, hey, like don't, don't worry too much about all these crazy things in life. Rather, focus on what we do have, what God has given us. Uh, and he's 100% about fearing the Lord and tapping into this, this wisdom or this hokmah in our lives. Um, now remember, like I said earlier, there, there is still an author uh, that compiles everything that the critic is saying. Um, and he beautifully wraps it up like a cherry on top or the bow on a gift. He reminds us in the end, he says, that the proper response to all the things in life, whether it be good or whether it be bad, is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And you can see that in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. And I think this is really powerful. This is really beautiful um, because Ecclesiastes is reminding us that it all comes down to, yes, life is unpredictable. He, he realizes and understands the unpredictability of life, but he realizes and tells us that, hey, like, because of that, don't worry about it too much. Just fear the Lord, keep His commandments, and tap into this thing called hokmah, right? Now that brings us today to uh, the book of Job, and we'll finally talk a little bit more about Job today. Now, the book of Job is quite interesting, uh, much different than the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Job is compared to that as an old man, right, that maybe has a long beard, white hair, wrinkles in his face, and you can tell that he's lived quite a long life. And I like to say uh, that the book of Job is really like a case study of the book of uh, Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes written in story form. And because you'll notice then the other two, it's not really like a story. It's not something that we follow along to. But the book of Job is very easily uh, a story type uh, book um, that's 42 chapters long. And the majority of the book is really the conversation that he's having uh, with a few individuals and his friends. Now, um, and I think uh, the powerful thing about the book of Job, uh, and as you'll see as we talk a little bit more about today, is he's taking the, the hokmah or the wisdom from the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's really applying it to his life, especially in a time of suffering and trial and this season of fear that he experiences. And like I said earlier, we're not going to read through the book of Job. We're not going to do analysis of every verse or chapter, uh, but we're going to pinpoint a few things and we're going to talk about that today. Let me go ahead and summarize it really quickly, though, for those that may be a little unfamiliar and so that we're all kind of on the same page on what the book of Job is about. And I do encourage you, if you haven't had the chance to read the book of Job, to read it. Uh, I've read it a few times now, and every time I've read it, I've always discovered something a little different and a little odd and a little something more to notice. And you'll remember that I did a sermon on the book of Job a long time ago. Actually, my first sermon here uh, for the joint worship was on the book of Job. Um, but every time I read it, uh, it's always just 
been a little different. And so I encourage you. But anyways, let me summarize for you right now. Uh, basically, the book of Job tells a story of a good man who is overcome by many different troubles. Right? He loses his wealth. He loses his family. He loses his health. Right? His wife even curses him and tells him to, to give up on his God. Right? He doesn't know why God is doing all of this to him. And we see Job struggling uh, with trying to understand what's happening. Uh, but the thing is, is as we read the story of Job, we're the, we realize we know what's going on. And we know that the whole reason why all of this is happening is because uh, God and Satan are having this conversation up in heaven or in the heavenly realms. And uh, uh, God is basically trying to prove to Satan that Job has been and always will be faithful. Right? Uh, as we continue to look at the story, three of his friends come along to try to console him, to weep with him, to mourn with him, and to be with him in his misery. And then they all engage in a very lengthy discussion. And that's where we see the bulk of the book of Job, is he's, these conversations that Job is having with his friends, friends with Job. And they're trying to explain uh, why all of this stuff is happening to Job. And they're telling Job, hey Job, like you must have done something wrong in your past life in order for God to be angry at you. So you better repent. You got to get your life together. Uh, fix whatever you're doing because God is clearly angry. Uh, but Job doesn't buy it. And Job doesn't like that answer actually. And so he's, you know, arguing with them and proving his innocence and saying like, Hey, like I'm innocent. Um, and it's not, it's not because of me. Um, and he, he's trying to, to put these ends together, trying to make peace with God. Um, and Job uh, questions uh, and wrestles with God's justment, uh, justice and God's treatment uh, to him. And later, in towards the end of the book, we have a fourth character. Uh, this is something I actually did not realize until I read it again. Uh, but there's another character, Elihu, uh, Elihu, who appears and he makes four different speeches, which he thinks is the, the answer to Job's problems. Uh, but it doesn't seem to make a difference for Job. And then towards the end of the book, at the very last few chapters, God reveals himself to Job and uh, he addresses Job personally himself. And these speeches from God directly change uh, Job's attitude, which results in Job sub completely sub submitting himself to God. And uh, basically, in the end, God says that Job, like, you are right, you have been faithful, and he restores uh, all his prosperity and his happiness. And so that's the book of Job in a nutshell. Um, now, uh, when we talk about the book of Job, and you'll notice a lot of the time, especially nowadays, if you uh, read articles or listen to podcasts of different sermons and whatnot, that a lot of the times the book of Job is used to kind of explain and try to understand why bad things happen to good people. And you know, Job is like that prime example where he was a great faithful guy. He even prayed for his family and for his children that were out partying and whatnot, uh, and yet stayed faithful to God. And, um, and they use this to try to explain uh, why bad things happen to good people. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's actually the practice of, or, or that's called actually theodicy. And I've shared that before, but basically a theodicy is trying to justify a good God in a world filled with evil and sin. Like how can we say that God is so good when the world seems to be so filled and corrupt with evil? 
Um, and so today we're actually not going to be going that route. I don't want to talk about the Odyssey quite yet. Uh, maybe on a future sermon or a future note, I will dive into a little deeper uh, this ideal of the Odyssey and maybe talk about uh, different understandings um, and our Adventist and our biblical understanding of the Odyssey. But we're going to detour away from that route just a little bit. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Job responds to his situation of suffering and this season of fear and what that could look like for us today and maybe some lessons that we can pull away uh, if we look at Job's um, response. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump in. Um, One of the first things you'll notice when you read the book of Job, uh, especially in his dialogues with his friends, uh, is that while he's arguing and questioning his friends, uh, not only is he doing it to his friends, but he's actually questioning uh, God himself. Now, uh, some of us may be a little skeptical and a little bit, uh, you know, maybe fearful when we hear this because we think, Wait, like, why would you ever want to question God? Isn't that the same thing as like challenging God or or uh, testing God or putting God to the test? Like, doesn't the Bible say somewhere where we're not supposed to like test the Lord your God? Uh, and you're not wrong. In the Bible, it actually says time after time again, verse after verse, it says, "Don't test the Lord your God." Deuteronomy six uh, verse sixteen says, "Do not test the Lord your God." And then, while Jesus was in the wilderness, uh, in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. We see in his dialogue with Satan, um, as Satan is trying to uh, tempt him and whatnot in the wilderness, uh, Jesus even says to not put the Lord your God to the test, right? Like, don't test God. Like, what are you doing? And so, for me also, when I was growing up, I used to think this all the time. I used to think, oh, well, if that means, like, I can't question God or test God, like, I just have to believe whatever the Bible has to say and just believe it verbatim. Whatever it says, it is. And I just blindly just will follow. Um, And if you think this way, uh, I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to obey and to trust that God uh, is doing what's what, what is better or I'm not trying to say that like you know oh don't like or you know I'm not trying to to say that what you're what you think is wrong but I want to rock the boat just a little bit and kind of challenge that uh, idea um, and present to you something a little bit different so uh, first of all I think there is a big difference between questioning and testing or challenging uh, I think the motivation and the intent behind each of those things does make a big difference, right? I think when we question something, uh, it's not necessarily questioning in in light of trying to belittle or trying to undermine something, um, but challenging or testing in a way could be perceived as something of that nature. But also we find in the Bible where, especially in the Old Testament, the prophets also question God quite often. Uh, Habakkuk actually questions God and says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And will you not hear? Right. So very clearly the prophets do it. Jonah, he does that too. Right? He questions God when God is merciful to the city of Nineveh and doesn't destroy them, even though God said he would. And then Jonah's like, God, what in the world are you doing? I would rather die. And he complains and he's just like, God, I'm done with you. Right. 
Um, and in the book of Job, we clearly find the same thing. If you read through his dialogue that he's having with his friends, but also with God, very clearly he questions God and he doesn't understand, right? Job 10 verse 1 says, My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Very clearly, Job was a man of faith, but Job also was very unhappy with what was going on. He wanted to express his complaints to God. And we see it's very interesting that what God does is God doesn't necessarily uh, uh, ignore him or zap him out of existence for having these kind of thoughts or feelings or questions, um, but rather he listens and God understands the suffering that Job is going through. Now, at this point, I think it's very I think it's very clear, uh, and I think you understand my perspective, that I think questioning is very healthy, and I think it's a very normal thing to do. Because I believe the purpose of questioning, and especially if we look at the book of Job, Job's questioning of God was not to say that God was wrong, or that, that God uh, needs to get off of his throne, but rather it was for him uh, to seek better understanding of God's justice and God's way. That's the purpose of why Job was ans- asking these kind of questions. You see, I strongly believe that questioning is extremely important in our spiritual walk in our journey. Because I believe that questioning is an expression of our love and our care for God. Now, hear me out. Hear me out on this and then let me explain a little bit of why I believe this. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. So when Job questioned God, it wasn't due to a lack of faith. But it was because Job still cared and still had faith in God. Now, that's really powerful. Uh, Let me tell you a story. When I was actually studying at La Sierra, when I came down here in 2016, um, and when I made up my mind that I was going to be a pastor, uh, I was going to study religious studies, uh, and I did. uh, But my uh, understanding of what religious studies was all about was, it's going to just be a Bible study for the next two years. Like, I'm going to open the Bible every day. I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to understand, like, confusing text and complicated things and learn how to give better sermons and to present myself and how the church works. And I thought this is what I was going to learn. But very quickly, I found out that uh, that was not what I was learning. But rather, I was learning things like philosophy, uh, studying about theologians like Karl Barth and um, just a whole bunch of, you know, I'm not even remembering these names anymore, uh, but all these different uh, people and, and looking at their perspectives of God and the wrestling and the struggling that they have with God. And I started to feel like, Like, what am I doing here? Like, I came to study the Bible, uh, but I'm not studying anything about the Bible. I'm studying more about like these concepts and these, these, these ideologies. And I even started studying about different religions for the sake of my world religions course. And I just thought, man, like what in the world have I gotten myself into? I knew I shouldn't have came to La Sierra. California is just this very evil place. Like they don't teach God, they teach about man. And I just started thinking like, I need a transfer. I need to get out of here. I gotta go to Andrews, I didn't go to Southern, or I need to go to some like some Bible school that that's 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 not La Sierra. Um, and I started to get really depressed and very just like uh, very like discouraged about my decision to come and study religious studies at La Sierra. And so um, 
with these questionings and with this struggle that I started to have, I started to question my faith. I started to question God. I started to question all of these things. And I started to think like, man, like I got to do something now or this doesn't look like it's going to end out pretty. And so uh, towards the end of my first year, uh, I decided to go talk to my academic advisor, which was one of the professors of the, uh, of the divinity department. And uh, I went to go talk to him. And I asked him for like advice on like what, what classes should I take? And then I like kind of poured myself out to him and uh, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of ranting and telling him about how much I was struggling and not really sure if this was the right calling for me. And I'm not really learning to become a pastor, but it feels like I'm becoming a Pharisee. Uh, he stops and he just like looks at me and he says, Tim, like, I am so glad you're struggling. And I looked at him and I was like, no way. this." This guy enjoys like my pain, like something's wrong. Uh, and I remember him telling me, he said, like, I'm glad that you have the opportunity to come to La Sierra and to wrestle with these things and to wrestle with your faith. And I was super confused at this point. And I thought, you know what? This guy is a waste of my time. Like, why did I even think about talking to him? You know, I waste all my energy on that. Like, I'm done. Like, I'm transferring. But then he, he stopped me and he proceeded to tell me, he said, Tim, listen to this. He said, the opposite of love isn't hate, but it's indifference. The moment that you decide to stop caring about God, the moment that you stop wrestling and you stop struggling with God is the moment that I'll begin to worry about your spiritual well-being. Your struggle and your wrestling with God proves to me that you still care about your walk with God. And you see, church, when I first heard that, at first, I was confused. I was like, what is he telling me now? But it really was a game changer in my faith and my walk with God. I realized that the wrestling and the struggling that I was going through was not necessarily a sign that all hope was lost, but rather it was a sign that I cared so much about my walk and my relationship with God that I was willing to wrestle and struggle with things that I did not understand and things that I wanted to understand better. And it literally changed my life. And I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that conversation. That, that guy now is my mentor and I look up to him and I love him so much. And so if he is watching this or if you know who he is, uh, please do not blast him. Uh, he is my literally one of my best friends uh, and, and helper in the ministry. Um, but uh, I realized, and maybe you too will realize that you're wrestling and struggling with God is not necessarily a sign of you giving up on God, but it's a sign that you still care about God and there's something worth fighting for. To conclude, I want to go ahead and read uh, Job 42, verse 1 to 6. And this is what the Bible says. Job 42, 1 to 6 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, church, when we run into difficult situations in life where we may not understand what is going on, Rather than abandoning God, it is in these moments that we should hold on to Him so much more, just like Job. 
When I was growing up uh, and learning Korean, especially in high school, uh, I watched a lot of uh, Korean dramas, movies, uh, and sitcoms. I actually preferred watching sitcoms because they were like 20-30 minutes uh, episodes, weren't very long, and there was like a hundred of them you could watch. And so it would be a lot of content to watch, not too long, you know, you could space it out throughout your day. And that's basically how I began my journey and improving on my uh, Korean ability. Uh, but there's uh, an episode where uh, there's the main character, his son, and then a friend of the son, and they decide to go on this like treasure hunt uh, out in the mountains in the middle of the winter. And so they go out and they decide to trek out there to find this treasure. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, they can't get to the location in time. The sun is setting really quickly, and they realize that they need to turn around before it gets dark, or they're going to get stranded out in this uh, Korean mountain wilderness. And as they're coming back, uh, they actually lose the trail. And so now they're lost. They don't know how to get back. And they're just like going in circles. And they're realizing they're seeing their own footprints. And they're just like, it's a mess, right? They're obviously lost. And the main character starts to panic. And his son and his friend are, you know, they're just trying to stay warm. They're not really thinking about it too much. But the father, the main character, panics. And he starts to like, like, go crazy and he starts to say like oh no like we're gonna die we're not gonna make it the sun is setting like what are we gonna do and so he tells his son and the friend like i'm gonna call my wife i'm gonna just tell her that i love her and this is all over like i'm so sorry and he pulls out a smartphone right and he makes the call and you can imagine the son and the friend are like looking at him like wait are you kidding me like you have a phone, like you have a smartphone. He's making the call, he's like crying, he hangs up and then like, he like tosses out the phone in the middle of the snow. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, you know, and you, you see this, this story. Now, you see church, when it comes to our times of uncertainty, I feel like a lot of the times, and maybe even sometimes, that the very solution to the fear or the season of fear that we find ourselves in is literally with us, that we have access to it. But a lot of the times what we do is we take that, that tool and that resource and we toss it out the window. We look at it and we don't take the time to understand it and we just throw it out the window and say, you know what, like, this is it. Like, I'm just going to succumb to this fear. But I believe very strongly that the Bible, that our faith, that our relationship with God, these tools that we have, if we just take a little bit more time to invest in these things, rather than just throwing these out the window, that we can take these things and use these things as a tool to help bring us comfort and peace in times of uncertainty and times of fear. You know, in times of, 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 of COVID-19 and times of, of fear and uncertainty, it's now where we should be holding on to God even more. You guys know what one constant thing uh, about Job in, in all the good and bad that happens in his story? Do you guys know what that one constant thing is? It's faith. And it's not necessarily like a, a good faith, a strong faith, or a bad faith, or a weak faith. It's the fact that he has faith, right? Job's faith wavers. And he becomes frustrated. You look at Job chapter 21 verse 4. As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? You see, he complains to God. He's like, God, like, I'm not complaining to man. I'm complaining to you. Right? Job 3 verse 3 says, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which I, it was said a male child is conceived. He's regretting the fact that he was even born. That's like, that's not even something that he can control. 
Yet he's so upset and so frustrated with the situation that he's in. You see, he questions God. He struggles with God. He's wrestling with God. And, you know, I know, like, this kind of faith, we don't really talk about in the church. We don't really emphasize this kind of faith uh, in the church. We, we talk about this lovey-dovey kind of uh, smooth sailing, just wonderful kind of faith. But we, we fail to emphasize that, that there's a very realistic picture of what our faith looks like. You see, Job's faith isn't always pretty, but it's preserving. You see, the answer to suffering is literally right in front of us. It's faith. It's faith that we believe and trust that God is good, that God is powerful, that God is loving, that God is merciful and God is wise, that God will pull through and provide for us what He sees as best, regardless of what happens around us. You see, church, I want to challenge you today to think this, to ask yourself this question, to whom or what do I put my trust in, in times of difficulty? You see, as we look at the life of Job, as we examine and see this case study of his life, I pray that that we can take uh, courage and assurance that yes, even if things go down the drain, if things are not well, if things fall apart, If I don't understand what's happening around me, the heartbreak, the pain, if I cannot comprehend these things, that I will still lift it all up to you, that I will declare that you are still God and that you are still worthy of all my praise. Church, I want to challenge you today that when we encounter these seasons of fear, that maybe the tool and the answer to to overcoming these things and to getting through them is the very thing that we have in front of us, within us, in our Bibles, our church. It's the faith and the relationship that we have with God. So I encourage you to cultivate and take the time to get familiar, unlike the character in my, uh, in my Korean sitcom that I used to watch, where he was so unfamiliar with the very fact that his smartphone had the map to get out of the wilderness. Church, We too have the very map and the tools to bring us peace and comfort at a time like now. So church, I want to challenge you to spend time to get to know your word, to get to know the Bible, to get to know the God that we worship, to spend the time through scripture, through prayer, through fellowship, whatever it takes. Let us be prepared for when we run into those times of uncertainty that we can hold on and cling on to Jesus also ever closely. Let us pray.